Hello and welcome to the Double Double. My name is David Dixon and it is Tuesday, April 21st here in New York City. Uh, Hoping everyone is healthy, staying safe, and trying to make the most out of this quarantine situation. Uh, We're all going to get through this together. Uh, Coming up today on the podcast is an interview I recorded this past Friday with the head women's basketball coach at Bowdoin College, Adrian Scheibels. Uh, Coach Scheibels is one of the most successful coaches in all Division III basketball. She's doing incredible things and has done incredible things with the Bowdoin program as a player at Wesleyan in the NESCAC. Uh, Just seeing what she's done from afar, just in the standings and the box scores with the Bowdoin team has just been incredible to watch, always on the national stage. So I had a lot of fun interviewing and talking to her. So I hope you guys enjoy that one. Uh, Another thing that came out this past weekend was the first two episodes of the Michael Jordan 10-part ESPN documentary, The Last Dance. That is my recommendation this week. If you guys haven't seen it, uh, I highly recommend checking it out. The first two episodes were just a really good preview and setup of the 97-98 season, which this documentary will primarily cover. Uh, some things about Jordan in high school and college, just about his legendary work ethic and just his intensity. Uh, and it kind of set the stage for the disconnect and the animosity between the players and the front office, the coaches in the front office, and kind of how uh, what led into it being the season that it led to be. So I highly recommend that. Uh, I'm sure ESPN is going to reshow it all week, and it's probably available on their streaming platform as well. So without further ado, I'm going to hit the music, and coming up after that, when we come back, is my interview with Coach Adrian Scheibels from Bowdoin College from this past Friday. Joining me today on the Double Double is a very special guest, the head women's basketball coach at Bowdoin College, Adrian Scheibels. A native of Maine, Coach Scheibels played her collegiate basketball at Bates College in the NESCAC and was a two-time team captain and 1,000-point scorer. After graduating from Bates, Coach Scheibels began her coaching career as an assistant at Babson College coaching basketball, then at Colby College where she also coached soccer and basketball and as the assistant and eventual head coach at Elms College before taking over as head coach at Swarthmore in 1997. Under her watch, the Garnet experienced a drastic turnaround going from a 7-win team the year prior to her arrival to a 23-win NCAA tournament team just four years later. She returned to Maine in 2006 as the dean of athletics at the Gould Academy and became the head women's basketball coach at Bowdoin in 2008. In her 12 years at Bowdoin, she has continued and grown the program's tradition of excellence, helping the team to two NESCAC championships, 11 NCAA tournaments, including back-to-back appearances in the national championship game in 2018 and 2019, and four runs to the Sweet 16, and she was named the 2019 WBCA National Coach of the Year. I'm thrilled that she's taking the time to join me today. Coach, how's it going? It's going great. Thanks so much for having me. Of course, I really appreciate you taking the time. So, as I mentioned at the top, you grew up in Maine. When did you first start to play basketball and kind of fall in love with the game? 
Great question. Um, I grew up on a dairy farm in, in a pretty rural part of Maine, and so, and and grew up, I don't want to date myself here, but grew up in a time where Title IX was just really impacting um, the opportunities for girls in sports. So mm-hmm. for the most part, just growing up, I we had a hoop at my grandmother's house next door on the farm, and my brother and I would play a little bit of one-on-one and horse, and that's how I was introduced to the game. Um in eighth grade, the girls' varsity basketball coach approached me in the hallway, I'll never forget it, and and said that he really thought that I should come out for the team. Um, and we, I was really fortunate to grow up in, an, in, a, in a school district where we had a strong girls' basketball team mm-hmm. um, with some amazing role models um, for me as a young girl. And so he really got me into playing basketball in eighth grade, so I started pretty late. Um, but from the get-go, I was, I was hooked, you know. Growing up on a farm, you're really kind of taught, or right. I was from an early age, that it's all about, you know, pulling your weight and being part of a team and mm-hmm. contributing to the family in that case. So so sports and being part of a team, really, it, it just felt like it was just very comfortable and something that I enjoyed a lot, and, and, um, and so I was hooked after starting in eighth grade. So... As, as you mentioned, Title IX was just really starting to, it was enacted, but it was also, it was really starting to, to grow and blossom around the country. Were you a multi-sport athlete in high school, or was basketball kind of just your game? Absolutely a multi-sport athlete, and I, I have a strong belief that that's um, something that, um, that, that young people should continue to focus on and, and cross-train. Um, so it's something that I really support in my daughter's experiences. I have two teenage daughters, but um, yeah, I played soccer and softball and basketball, three sport athlete, and all through high school. That's that's awesome. I was a two sport athlete in high school. I was the only player on my high school basketball team who played two sports, and I, wow. I I thought it was crazy that more people didn't. But so back to you. So what was your recruiting process like in high school, and kind of what went into the decision to stay in state and go to Bates College? Great question. Um, yeah, it was non-existent, the recruiting process. I mean, I grew up in a kind of a different time and in an area where, unless you were Div- Division One talent, you, you know, there wasn't a lot of recruiting that took place. Um, I did reach out to the Bates coach to let her know that I was interested, and um, I was accepted fall early decision. So I knew in December that I was going to Bates, and, um, and we, made, we were in the state championship game, in February, and I remember she um, I, she uh, wrote me a, a note after that game to say that That's awesome. um, there had been someone there watching me on her behalf. I later found out was Lee Campbell, the director of financial aid, and he was the men's basketball sort of bookkeeper for many years. I don't know if you know him, but um, so he was sort of watching and, and came back and, and told her, I think this is someone that could help your team. So that was the extent of my recruiting process. Okay. I was really fortunate to land in a place where I could make the team and make an immediate impact on the team, and um, and I was surrounded by a great group of women, and uh, and my first female coach that I'd ever had, which which certainly made an impact on my career decision. How is it different as a as a female athlete being coached by a female coach versus a male coach? Uh, I think it. I think it. Um, different people would have different answers to this. For me, it was. I'd never had a female coach. Um, I grew up in a family where, you know, my my dad was pretty much the one that ran the show. <laughs> um, and so for me to have a female 
uh, was really critical. And, um, and I'll be honest, it took a little while to adjust to having, um, a, a woman telling me what to do. I think at first I resisted mm-hmm. a little bit and, and, and questioned and challenged, which I regret deeply, but, um, but the great news is over time, my coach and I, we developed a, a wonderful relationship and she's the one that introduced me to coaching. And, uh, we kept in touch for, for, um, all the years until she passed away a few years ago from cancer. But um, when I came back to Bowdoin, she was certainly like welcomed me warmly back into the NESCAC and was an amazing mentor for me. So at a school like Bates, which is a, a top-notch academic school, many juniors and seniors uh, begin doing internships and pursuing their first jobs in a wide variety of fields. When did you know that you wanted to pursue coaching as a career? I thought about it in college. Like I said, she, um, Coach Graff, uh, invited me to go with her to the. Uh, she she had been invited to be an instructor for a Yes Clinic. Um, it mm-hmm. was youth education through sport, and these clinics took place at the men's Final Four, Division Three Final Four, when I was in that state. And so she was um, volunteering her time to instruct in one of these clinics and asked if I wanted to go along and and for uh, asking for a certain number of student athletes to participate. Um, and so that experience, uh, as well as some summer camp work, really led me to think maybe this is something that I could do, but I'm right. a history major, and following graduation, you know, the, you have a lot of thoughts about, like, well, I've got to make some money, and um, <laughs> yeah. coaching was not, you know, <laughs> something that was super appealing in that way, and so I, I worked in a law firm my first year out of college mm-hmm. in Boston, um, but I really hated it. I hated the office work. Um, I mean, it was a great opportunity, don't get me wrong, and a, and a wonderful firm, um, and it taught me a lot of things and provided a lot of confidence for me, but I missed uh, basketball so much. I missed, you know, that that camaraderie of being part of a team and striving to a- achieve a goal, and so um, my brother was attending Babson, so when I was visiting him one weekend, I walked over to the gym and walked, knocked on Judy Blinstrup's door, and she was um, willing to take me as a volunteer, and that's how things got started and it was then that I knew that I wanted to be a coach once I started working with her. That's awesome. That's awesome. So, so at Babson, you're, you're a volunteer assistant. Just what is it like and, and, and is it a challenge to coach athletes who are so close in age to you as you were at that time? Uh, yes, a hundred percent. I think, and we have a lot of alumni in coaching and, and I talk to them a lot, you know, their first two years, but I, it's all, I think it's a transition as a young person, you really um, you still see things um, and feel things um, from this from that perspective and point of view, and it takes a while to start to you know feel like you're having an impact from the from the other side of the floor. And I'll never forget working at Babson, um, and we played Bates uh, while I was there, and just just feeling like incredibly torn to be on the other side of yeah. the floor. But, but also invested in the women that I was working with. and um, But it definitely took a year or two to transition um, to really the, the embracing the role of being the coach and letting go of, of the play side of things. Right, right. So, so when you got the assistance job at Colby, as I mentioned at the top, you were not only a basketball coach, but you also coached uh, the soccer team. What was that experience like coaching soccer, and did you pick up anything from that experience to help you during basketball season? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Um, 
I love the sport of soccer. And so I worked with the same head coach for both sports. So back then, as you know, like a lot of coaches mm-hmm. um, coach more than one sport. And so um, I worked with Caroline Beach. She was a Colby alum and um, coached both sports. And I was actually, she put me in charge. Um, she had played basketball at Colby and, and soccer was sort of, I, you know, I would guess her second love. Um, and so she was like, you're, you know, you're in charge of soccer team. So that was a huge responsibility right away that taught me a lot. Um, but I think, you know, there are, there are tactical things that you can learn from coaching soccer that, you know, are for basketball. Um, but certainly Colby was a place to be and to grow as a coach, um, not only to work with Carol Ann, but, um, to have the opportunity to be in the presence of Dick Whitmore, who was yeah. defense coach at the time just a legend and was um, a really important mentor in my life and I used to go and, and watch his practices and he would put out these papers about just different concepts of the sport and I would just eat those up. I would find them on the printer and like make secret copies for myself <laughs> and um, so it's just a really, it was a, it, it, I was super lucky to fall into that into that, um, that job um, at that time at that place. So fast forwarding a few years, you become the head coach at Swarthmore in the summer of 1997. And for the listeners who don't know, it's one of the most prestigious academic schools in the entire country. Just how difficult is it recruiting to a school like Swarthmore, where you not only have to find a player good enough skill-wise, but also has the academic ability to get into the school and do well? Yeah, I mean, I listened to your podcast with Landry, and um, and I think he really nailed this question, which is um, it's it is definitely challenging. There's a niche um, to recruiting for that school. Um, the standards are incredibly high, and um, you really need to you know to find that special student athlete that's super you know intellectual that also can, can play ball and um, and. But that being said, it's a great school. It's one of the most beautiful campuses out there. Yeah. It, you know, it's a great education. And so um, I was really fortunate to land that job as my first full-time head coaching position out of graduate school, for sure. So the, the program was not very successful before you took over, winning only seven games uh, the year before. How did you go about turning that program around? Um, yeah, I think it, it's a combination of, I mean, first and foremost, recruiting, uh, identifying those those student athletes that I just you know mentioned, referenced, um, and so that was the biggest piece is, uh, is really focusing on recruiting and bringing in talent, um, and and also women who would just mesh well with the the community and the philosophy of the college. But uh, beyond that, it was I think focusing on increasing the standards within the program. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think it was a combination of the two. So, so as you say, you know, you're, you're building your culture, you're getting in these, these new players, you're increasing the standards. A lot of coaches like to use the term buy-in when they're describing how the players are adjusting to this culture as they're buying into it. I'm just curious, what are the signs that you look for as a coach towards your players and towards your team that they are, in fact, buying in? That's a really interesting question. Um, I think you sense it from first the relationships that you're building with uh, student athletes. I'm all about uh, you know building relationships and connections. I think that's the key to being an effective coach and, and gaining their trust. And so I think you have a sense of that as you're as you are getting to know them of of, of when you are developing 
um, those relationships and that trust with them. Um, but, I, you know, another uh, clear way of, of sensing it is through, through their effort and practice and, and contests. And um, so we, we continue to see that rise. You know, of course, it took some time. There were some people that dropped out along the way. You know, we had to make some cuts or people quit. And, and as we found, you know, talented classes of, of recruits that were coming in. But um, I'd say it's through a combination of gaining trust and, and feeling that as a coach, mm-hmm. but also the effort that you're, that you're seeing on the court. So the 2000-2001 season was a special one uh, for Swarthmore. You guys won 23 games and the Centennial Conference, and you made it to the NCAA tournament. When did you kind of know that that group could do something special? Well, that's that's also a great question. I, you know, it it was so long ago, but yeah. if memory serves correctly, the the moment I really knew this is a, this is really that I, that we had something special is when um, we had a in my first recruiting class, I was fortunate enough to score this great Maine kid who's from rural Maine and. You know, I went home to visit my family over Christmas, and I went to see her play um, point guard. Uh, so she was one of my – she was in my first recruiting class and ended up being one I've ever coached. Wow. Um, and players, yeah. Um, so in her senior year, we decided to make a trip back to Maine to play. Uh, we played Farmington, and we played Bowdoin. Um, and Bowdoin was having a pretty phenomenal year that year, and we went to their gym, and, and, and we, we won um, – I don't want to say easily. It was a great game, but um, it, the team just rose to play them, and, I, and that's when I walked out of that gym and thought, wow, I don't, I don't know who's – we have something special here, and we're going to go deep um, into, the, into, the, into the tournament, into the playoffs for the Centennial, and, um, and sure enough, we did. So you, you mentioned that that first – recruiting class I, I asked coach app about this at, at Williams but just what does that first recruiting class mean to you when it's your first recruiting class as a head cl- as a head coach um I, I mean I, I really think it's a huge step in, in building your program and I think it's um you know it's just I was just talking to one of our alums who's um a first year head coach and we were talking about that same issue I think it's really important that you um, that you resist a, sort of a, a, a desperation in your recruiting uh-huh. and, you know knowing it's so important um, you need to refrain from that and really focus on the people that you're bringing in because those people and the character of those people is gonna think, be a huge um, your team culture and getting that buy-in that you referenced earlier. For sure. So uh, so after nine years at Swarthmore, you moved back to Maine with your family to become the Dean of Athletics at the Gould Academy. What went into that decision to leave college basketball? Yeah. Um, I had people telling me that I was nuts. And in hindsight, I probably was. And really what I was was sleep-deprived. And I, I had a <laughs> one-year-old and a two-year-old. And my husband was working at Penn and admissions and, and you know, um, we just, we had a lot on our plate and, and, and really, um, my family was up in Maine. So, um, I think, you know, we just were looking for a little more balance in our lives as a, as a young family. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I had tenure at Swarthmore and so I walked away from that and just felt like, you know, if I ever want to get back to this, I can, which was a little bit naive <laughs> in <laughs> hindsight, 
But I just, uh, my husband got a, a job opportunity at Google to be the director of college counseling and then, um, you know, the head of school, a position for me as deep and um, so off we went to get to get closer to my family and, and, and Maine and, and to try to have a more balanced um, life, I guess. Gotcha. And so we were there for three years, but I, boy, did I miss it. I mean, right away, I missed it. And so I was very fortunate to get the opportunity at Bowdoin. Very grateful for that. So just from my research coach, and correct me if I'm wrong, but the dean of, the, the dean of athletics is, is like being the athletic director at, at Gould, right? It's you're in charge of all the sports. So just what was it like being a member of the administration in charge of every sports team and not just the one that you were coaching? Yeah, I learned a lot about effective leadership, I think, and collaborating with other people. Um, it is it is like the, like the athletic director position, um, but I did serve on, you know, a committee of people that were really overseeing the life of the school as a whole. And so gotcha. you really get pulled in conversations about you know things that are outside of the realm of athletics and in particular at Gould um, probably there aren't a lot of people that know a ton about it but it's located in uh, really near Sunday River Ski Resort in Bethel Maine and so the the biggest part of the athletic program there is the on snow programs which I was really unfamiliar with I didn't know I didn't even know what freestyle skiing was um, <laughs> when I got there so and and we had kids on the U.S. ski team oh that, that were at Gould, and so that was the biggest part of our athletic program, I would say. Um, and it was a big draw for missions at our school mm-hmm. um, and for filling beds. And so I really, I, I mean, I had to learn a lot not about being not only about being an effective leader, but also about those particular sports and the nuances that um, that surrounded those sports. Gotcha. Wow. So in the summer of 2008, Stephanie Pemper decides to leave Bowdoin to become the head coach at Navy, and you get hired as the new coach of Bowdoin women's basketball. And for the listeners who don't know, Coach Pemper had built Bowdoin into one of the premier women's basketball programs in the entire country, winning at one time seven straight NESCAC championships, making it to eight NCAA tournaments, including five runs to the Elite Eight and the 2004 National Championship game. Coach, you obviously had a lot of success at Swarthmore, but was it difficult dealing with the expectations that people had for the Bowdoin program? Um, for sure. Yes, 100%. Um, it was a much different challenge for me than taking over the Swarthmore uh, job. And I would say, uh, I don't know, maybe I was just young and naive. I was 26 when I got the Swarthmore job. So um, maybe I was just naive when I took that over. But I, I feel it was a lot more called to take over a program that was already established um, and and a pressure to keep that going, mm-hmm. to get to know the student-athletes pretty quickly and, and to, to take that over. Um, so, yes, I definitely felt that pressure. Was it difficult trying to instill your culture and vision for the future of the program when they had so much success under Coach Pemper? Absolutely, 100%, yes. Um yeah, I um, I think that I I'm so grateful to Coach Pemper. I mean, so she called me at Gould and said I'm leaving, largely due to the relationship that we built um, after playing them uh, the game I referenced, where we came mm-hmm. up to Maine, and then they came down and played us at Swarthmore the next year, beat us at home, and so we kind of developed this nice little um, also a relationship 
um, where we'd get together at Final Fours and whatnot. And uh, back old, I went over to Bowdoin a few times to hang out with Coach Pemper and X and O. Um, so I was really grateful that she reached out to me and 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 encouraged me to apply. Um, and so, yeah, taking over her program, I'm a big believer. The first year, you know, when you're taking over a new a new leadership position. I think it's got to be like it's a tricky balance of you want to kind of get the lay of the land before you try to change everything or right. put your own stamp on it. Um, so there's a lot of conversations about with the team about what traditions are important to you. What what ones do you want to keep? What you know, as a basketball player, you know, um, there are those drills that you just can't imagine losing as a player that yeah. you love so much. Um, so you know, I asked them what what drills that you know did Coach Pemper just can't put out that you want to see implemented here. And so it was a it was really a block outline of trying to implement my own leadership style and system, but also being respectful of of the traditions, um, you know, and the elements of the program that they wanted to keep that they shared with her. And then as things move forward, it, you know, and I got more of a feel for what Bowdoin was about and what the program was about, what the players were about, and getting to know them. I was able to transition more and put my own, more of my own stamp on it, I feel like, moving forward. Gotcha. So just for the listeners who don't know, Coach, the NESCAC is the best women's basketball conference in all of Division Three, and it's common and pretty much expectation now for Bowdoin, Tufts, and Amherst not just to compete for conference titles every year, but also for national titles. What is it like as a coach to have such premier national programs in your own conference. Yeah, it's pretty cool. Um, but it's also really challenging, mm-hmm. not going to lie. Um, it's a combination of both. I think it is, it's, um, you're, as a coach, you're, you're sort of forced uh, for all of us in this league um, to, to, to continue to, to feel a sense of pressure of bringing in that next recruiting class um, and staying current with, you know, new systems that are being developed or, or being thoughtful about how you're going to take a new group of, of women and keep this thing going in the, in the best league in Division III. Um, so I think that really brings about a lot of benefits as far as, you know, um, continuing to grow as a coach and develop. And, and the people, the coaches in our league just challenge year in and year out, and I love that, and I love that sense of, um, of drive to keep, to keep, um, improving and, and learning. But, um, but the grind of the season, you know, it can be intense. Yeah. For sure. So coach, we talked about this a little bit in the pre podcast and, um, and I'm not going to lie to you now, it's almost impossible with the time we have to talk about each season in your tenure at Bowdoin. Cause I think we'd be here for a few hours and I don't want to disrespect any of the accomplishments your programs had or the women who've played for you, but I just want to specifically talk about the last three seasons uh, in your program. So the 2017-2018 season, you guys go on a deep run to the NCAA Finals. In that season, you lose to Tufts in the conference tournament semifinals. You avenge that loss in the Elite Eight to Tufts before falling to another conference rival, Amherst, in the finals. Just what's it like to match up against your conference rivals in the NCAA tournament with so much on the line? Yeah, I don't. I don't really think I prepared my team well for that. In hindsight, um, to be honest, um, as you know, playing in this league, um, but playing in any league, really, you have those rivals. Um, then there's a lot of emotion around yep. those rivalries, and there's a lot of history. There's a lot of baggage um, in some cases 
And, um, and so it's funny, you know, you, when you, when thinking about the Tufts game, um, when we played Tufts to go to the final four and, and that elite eight game, um, we, I think I approached that game much better in that, you know, right before the game in the pregame top, I, I ripped up the scouting report and said it has nothing to do with the scout. This game has nothing to do with it. Um, we know this team. We know them well. You're well prepared. You got this. And then I think the emotion built as we got that was our first Final Four as a group, you mm-hmm. know, um, first, the first time any of us had been there. Um, and so I don't think I prepared them well enough mentally going into that, that championship game. Um, again, against Amherst, it's, it's a regret for me, but I, I am proud of the way that they played hard, and we were dealing with some issues around, um, after that Elite Eight game, no one really knows this, but our, our team suffered some food poisoning that oh, day, no. so, yeah, so Kate Kerrigan, our, our National Player of the Year that mm-hmm. year, she she hadn't eaten anything for, like for until the Wednesday prior to that weekend, so oh, I do feel God. like we did run out of a little bit of a steam against um Amherst in that game, and I, I don't know if it was related to that. I don't want to make excuses, but but really, um, I don't think I prepared them well enough mentally. We had played exceptionally well in the game prior against Wartburg. Mm-hmm. I mean, it was it was like one of the best games I've ever seen Bowden play. We just we couldn't miss. We were everything was going our way. Um, and then when I look back in the game against Amherst, I think I, I think a lot of the, the issues, and I don't want to take anything away from how talented Amherst was in that year. They were mm-hmm. super talented. But I, I, I think I could have better mentally prepared the team for that game. Gotcha. And, yeah, that, that Amherst team, I think that they went 33-0, and if I remember from my research. Yeah, uh, they were really good. Yeah. So, <laughs> so, so the following year, you begin the season number two in the preseason top 25 D3Hoops.com poll. And, you know, it's not unusual for you guys to be ranked that high. But, but obviously coming off a season where, where you make it to the national championship and, and, and come short – a lot of times in sports, people say it's 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 hard to make it there the first time, and and even harder to 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 that that next season to recover to recover from from that type of loss. How did you help your team with the disappointment of coming so close to a championship to get ready for the next season? Yeah, I think that uh, we were very fortunate to have four seniors that were returning rising seniors who were. Um, who were really amazing leaders and 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 kind of put the team on their back and said, "Let's go. We're 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 getting after it, and we're going back there again, and we're going to get it done." Um, and so, even though we'd lost a super talented class of three women who were all starters, um, two of whom are coaches now, um, so great minds, great basketball players, uh, including the national player of the year, we mm-hmm. had this class of four seniors who. Um, you know, took that loss personally, as, as the entire team did, as we all did. And so I think there was incredible focus in the off season on, you know, let's get back on the horse, let's stay focused, um, let's grind, and let's get ready to, to, to go on this journey again um, and, and get back to the Final Four and win the championship. So I give a lot of credit to those seniors. Gotcha. So, so that year you guys go 31-2. and two. And you make it back to the NCAA championship championship game again. I'm not trying to to bring up old demons or bad memories, <laughs> coach. But but you guys get get that close and and you come up short to uh, in, in in the national championship. Just just what was it like to make it all the way back there? And kind of uh, just what was your approach like in the, in the following year? Was it was it any different? 
and just and just what was that second experience like? Yeah, it was it was still really magical. I mean, it's so much fun to go to a Final Four and just I mean everything that happens there. I mean, the, from the community service um, opportunity that you have, just mm-hmm. the the connections with the other teams, the banquet that you go to. It's just there. It's it's so special. I do feel like we had a lot more focus on, okay, yeah, we, okay, we're, this is all great, but we're here to win this, this gotcha. tournament. Um, so it was, it was heartbreaking to, to lose to Thomas Moore again, another undefeated team and, um, a team that was uh, in their final year of being part of division three, they were transitioning right. to NAIA. So, um, really great team, tough team, um, regardless of talent, it was still heartbreaking and, to your point about the earlier question, um, one of the things that I'll never forget is sitting in the locker room after that loss and um, just the team obviously devastated lots of years. And um, our junior at the time, Maddie Hassan, spoke up. I gave the team, I said, does anyone want to say anything? And she spoke up and she said, I just have so much respect for the fearlessness of this team. The fact mm-hmm. that we did, we had the same moment last year and we knew the heartbreak and we knew the devastation, but we all went all in this year on going back and winning a national championship and she was fearless and it just I mean in that moment like just it was heart-wrenching but so beautiful and well said um you know I'm just really fortunate to work with these women who are phenomenal right and and, and that's something that that I think people don't credit enough for athletes at you know, in college or high school or really at any level, it's just the fearlessness of it, of it. You're going out there in front of all these people and you're putting it all on the line. And I think fearless is, is, is a great word to, to describe it all. So this past season, you guys win the NESCACs, uh, you're primed again for a run to the final four. Obviously, right as you're getting ready to do that, the, the world kind of had other plans with the coronavirus pandemic. The first weekend you guys were hosting your pod, uh, as I've mentioned before on other podcasts, the way the Division Three tournament works is it's 64 teams, but uh, they group it by four where one school hosts the other three schools. Uh, and you guys were hosting your pod, and we saw that Johns Hopkins for the men's tournament and Amherst for the women's tournament had closed their gym to fans. Was there any talk amongst the team or the administration about playing your games without any fans? Uh, yeah, of course, we had conversations about it and referenced the Amherst situation. Um, we knew that they had decided late in the game to do that. Mm-hmm. Um, so, of course, we talked about it, and I asked my ID, is there any chance this is going to happen here? You know, and he said no. Um, but, but you know, it, we, it was the first sign that things, things were going to change pretty yeah. quickly, I think, when Amherst did that. And um, there was the... The, com- the conversation on the na- national, um, you know, with D three hoops and everything around that. Yeah, for sure. I I remember that, and you know, when when Hopkins did it, that's when it really dawned on me that that things were changing just because of how well known and respected they are, and just the public health science community. So you yeah. guys, you guys win both of those games in your pod in the first round against Brooklyn College, and then the second round against NYU. They really sent all the New York teams up to you. Wow. So obviously things were escalating. Every day, uh, just when you were getting ready for the Sweet 16, you guys were hosting again. Was that a normal week of practice? And were there discussions in the Bowdoin community about additional safety steps that you guys were going to take? Uh, yeah, there were 
many conversations on a daily basis. And um, it just felt like every time we sort of got adjusted to the new normal, whether that was no spectators or whatnot, there was something else. There was another um, gathering with our administrators about these are the conversations that we're now having, and this is these are the thoughts that are coming down the pike. And so um, it wasn't a normal week by any stretch, but it maintained that sense of normalcy within our practice times and with our players mm-hmm. as best we could and really tried to give them, um, to encourage them to think about the things they can control. There are things that are outside of our control, but it's important for us to focus on the things that are within our circle of control, and that's how we, what we do in practice right now, and, and are we going to get our 1% better today. Right. So we were trying to maintain that sense of normalcy for them, but there was just a lot going on, as you know. Yeah, for sure. So in a day that I'm sure you and your players will always remember, basically within 24 hours, the NBA suspended their season after Rudy Gobert tested positive for the coronavirus. The NCAA announced they had canceled all winter and spring championships, and suddenly your season was over. Where were you and the team when you guys found out about the news that the tournament was canceled? And can you share what the what the reaction was? Yeah, I of course remember exactly where it was. We so we um, when the NBA season got canceled, I knew that there was probably very little chance that we were going to make it to Ohio. But I was really hopeful and optimistic. All the teams had flown in and were there, Odin, and so I was really hopeful that we were. Um, and we had heard rumors the whole next day about NSA's meeting right now, and Landry and I were texting, people, everyone was texting that was in the tournament. Um, so, um, but we had practice in the morning and had a great practice. Um, we do this drill, shooting drill, where, like, if you get a perfect score, you get on this plaque in the locker room. One of our players actually got it that day. I mean, it was That's just awesome. a great practice and went through our scout um, and then uh, went up to our offices and our AD met us in the hall and said, nope, nothing yet, we're waiting to hear. And um, when my assistant across the hall said, there it is. And, and she had, she was looking at her phone and she's, she she checks Twitter and yeah. she said, there it is. I, I knew with those three words that that we were done. Um, so we... We put our heads together and decided how we were going to gather the team because we had finished practice and some some of the women, you know, had already showered and left and some were still in the training room. So we went down to the training room. Another team was in, and Whitman was in the gym practicing. So um, we couldn't walk through the gym to get to the locker room, so we all met in the training room and, and told the team there. And um, it was just, uh, as you can imagine, devastating, especially yeah. for our seniors, but for everyone, for all of us. Yeah, for sure. That was... Yeah, that must have been an incredible moment. And I, I, I find it interesting, too, how, how nowadays, you know, I found about the NBA and the NCAA just like your assistant coach did scrolling through Twitter. You know, it's, yeah. it, I found out about Kobe Bryant died on Twitter. It's, it's just amazing that that's how news is spread and announced these days. Uh, yeah. As, as we get towards, towards the end here, I just want to ask you a few things about some more of, of, of the macro things about coaching in the NESCAC and at Bowdoin. So as, so, so as I kind of mentioned at the top, you know, Bowdoin is a premier liberal arts school in the country. You played at Bates, a conference rival, another great school, and also at Swarthmore, which is another incredible liberal arts college. How do you deal with uh, helping the women in your program 
balance extremely challenging academics while also competing nationally in basketball? Um, yeah, I think, I think the, the best answer to that is um, it starts with recruiting. I mean, I think it's really important that when in the recruiting process that you're bringing in people who, who, um, who fit the needs of the college. And um, certainly with Bowdoin and Swarthmore, they weren't going to let anyone in who couldn't do the work. But right. if you're admitted to a place like Bowdoin or Swarthmore, you're going to, you've already learned time management skills and how to be, um, you know, how to succeed in the classroom. And you have to design my job as the coach is to just make sure I'm being respectful of their time. Mm-hmm. Um, I need to, you know, each and every year build um, a national, uh, you know, the, a team that has the opportunity to compete on the national landscape. And, um, you know, so that obviously takes time and commitment. But I need to be respectful of the fact that a lot of the, the reason a lot of these women choose a place like Bowdoin, um, Maddie Hassan had a, a Division One scholarship. I mean, mm-hmm. a lot of scholarship um, opportunities or opportunities to play in the Ivy League, but they choose Bowdoin because they want that balance. They want to. They want to be pre med. They want to do research with professors. They want to, you know, um, have a life outside of academics and athletics. They want to be able to give back to their community. And so I, as a coach, you know, need to be respectful of time and and things like building and lifting time so that I'm not putting an additional hour on their day. I think those are the areas where I can be helpful. But for the most part, I I just need to stay out of their way because they, (laughs) they know how to get it done in the classroom not like we have to have study hall time with these student athletes i mean they're as you know you're one yeah. um they're they're intellectually engaged and they want to they want to excel in the classroom um so it's just providing that that balance for them for sure so coach there, there's still a pretty big gap between the top level of collegiate women's basketball where you guys are and many teams around the country that that you guys do play I know coaches try and treat every single game the same way and prep in the same manner for everyone, no matter who they're playing. But, you know, you coach really smart players. Is it hard to prepare for a game where you guys are such big favorites? Um, no, but I don't know what the players would say to that, that question. Um, you know, I think there's just... We really try to, we have a philosophy, you know, respect all, fear none. And so, you know, we really try to um, have the same preparation for every game, Mm -hmm. regardless of the opponent. We have the same, you know, process that we go through to prepare the team, and that doesn't change no matter who it is. And likewise, you know, we have film after every weekend, regardless of who it is. And we're constantly trying to stress that every game every practice is an opportunity to get better and we're going to take that opportunity so um yeah i don't i don't feel like um i don't feel that but it's possible that the players feel like you know sometimes it's it's more difficult to get up for a team where you're heavily favored i don't know okay i okay. hope not i hope they don't feel that way <laughs> <laughs> so so coach there are many different rules in the women's game that makes it a lot more like the NBA or the WNBA than the college men game. Uh, you guys play four 10-minute quarters instead of two halves. You can advance the ball at, at the end of the game. Fouls reset after every quarter. Just how does, does the playing of the four quarters and, and all the other different rules 
uh, affect your in-game coaching strategy? Um, yeah, I, I think what's, one of the things I love about the quarters is you have, I just feel like there are more opportunities to, um, check in with your players. Um, mm-hmm. we set, we set game goal, game goals based on, on quarters and, um, and, and most gyms you're getting quarterly stats and you're able to, um, have that opportunity to, to, to check in, you know, we, we usually have a, a goal for we're, each quarter we're holding the opponent under this many points. Okay. So it's a real opportunity to check in with them and say, this, you know, our defense is letting us down. Look at the points on the board and, look and, and think about what our goal was. And so I like having those built-in, um, you know, checkpoints with the team. I'd say that's the most dramatic difference that I've, I've felt since we've gone to quarter quarters. Gotcha. Gotcha. So, one thing that the listeners may not know is that you also got the opportunity to to work and coach with USA Basketball. Uh, what was that experience like, and how did that opportunity present itself to go out to Colorado and and work with USA Basketball? Um, yeah, I don't, I don't quite honestly don't know how it presented itself <laughs> as far as how my name, you know, got on their radar. But um, but yeah, I. Carol Callen, who is um, with USA Basketball and just amazing leader and person and um, does so much for women's basketball, she she reached out to me and said, we have a spot. Would you like to fill that spot? And, um, you know, I walked across the hall and told my assistant I just got this email from Carol Callen. And she's like, why haven't you responded already? You know, what, what is there to think about, you know, because – Right away, I was like, oh, you know, is my husband traveling that week? Who's going to watch yeah. the kids? Whatever. And, and she's like, no, you just get back there and respond. And I did right away. I just jumped on it. What what a what an opportunity um, to work with not only Carol, but some of the best coaches in the business and and some of the best young talent out there. It was right. just remarkable. So, so, Coach, obviously when you're coaching a team of, of 15 women, Someone has to be the best player on the team, and someone just has to be you know the fifteenth player on the team. And in the last three years, you've gotten the opportunity where your where your number one player was not just number one player on the team, but was the national player of the year. And Kate Kerrigan in twenty seventeen, and Maddie Hassan uh, for this past season. Is it different or challenging to coach a national player of the year? Uh, absolutely not. It is in both cases. It's been and it's just such a blessing because um, both women were just the most selfless um, players. I mean, not they're just incredibly talented, but you know their teammates would run through a wall for them. Right. They're just they're just such great people and leaders. And uh, so, I mean, of course, when when Maddie had such a tremendous game against St. Thomas in the Final Four last year against. Arguably, you know, everyone considered the, the center for that team the best in the nation. And she's the candidate of the year. And she had, like, 25 points and went off. And we walked away from that game and went, okay, wow. Because, as mentioned, we had four incredibly talented players in something first team. Yeah. American, Abby Kelly graduated. So we were losing a lot of talent, but we were like, this is a good sign that she <laughs> game in this moment against that player. Yeah. So, um, you know, we had some inkling that she she was going to have a remarkable senior year. But, you know, of course, you never go into it thinking this is the National Player of the Year unless, you know, it's it's someone like Sydney Moss who was just dominating Division Three in her, her time for Thomas Moore. But, yeah. um, but she's just such a special, 
special leader and person, and so in way is it difficult. It's just only it's, it's a thing to work with her and with Kate and Dom. In general, this team, this is like really an amazing season. I feel like I learned a lot this year as a coach, so. So, so coach, the obviously, you know, the coronavirus pandemic has altered our normal life every, every day around the country and even around the globe. Many teams are being creative in how they are staying connected while practicing social and physical distancing. What are some things that you're doing at Bowdoin to stay connected with the women in your program? Uh, yeah, I think we're doing doing um, similar things to what everyone's doing. Doing a lot of Zoom courses, <laughs> a lot, a lot. Um, we did our end of the season individual meetings over Zoom, so we met with each of the players. Um, you know, after everyone got home and got settled, and uh, we hire our captains, their interview process. So last week we did that over Zoom, and um, hired our new our, our new rising captains for next year to get them in place. Um, and uh, the team is doing. Um, I think this is really cool. One of our first year players, which man, you know that you are blessed when you have one of your first year players is stepping up and issuing a challenge to the team. So she she put together like a running challenge, so three groups of five, and they're tracking how much they're running and competing as teams. Oh, that's for, great. Um, yeah, so they're doing that. We have, we're lucky to have a full-time strength and conditioning coach, and he's providing them with uh, all the athletes up open with bodyweight workouts and uh, videos of all the ex- – so they're, you know, they're staying connected with him and working out with those workouts. So – um, yeah, a, a lot of zooming, a lot of, um, we, we have a group me, a, a, a text, you know, mm-hmm. um, chain that we're, we're on constantly, but just, you know, letting the players know we're here for them, for them if, if they need anything and, um, and, and trying to keep the group connected and also loop in our incoming first years, you know, a little bit earlier than we probably would otherwise because they have time on their hands and I think high school seniors are feeling a real sense of loss too and yeah and um so if we can give them something to look forward to I think that's a positive for sure I totally agree so so coach I appreciate all the time I have five rapid fire questions uh to end the podcast you ready okay who is the best player you have ever coached against that I've coached against yeah oh boy um, that you should have given me some more time on these questions. <laughs> That's really tough. Um, I, you know, I'll be honest with you. Uh, so I'm going to pick someone just you know pretty current. I think Erica DiCandido at Tufts is a really great player. Yeah, fantastic on both ends, and 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 I like that. I like to compete against players who play hard on both ends of the floor. For sure. Do you have any pre-game superstitions? Um, yes. Well, um, my assistant and I have a, a, a thing. Our volunteer assistant, who's a male, really, he, he really scorns this whole thing that we have. But we do have superstition around if, you know, if we wear a certain coaching suit and we do not play well then usually that's put away for the remainder of the year so <laughs> it's not necessarily pre-game but it's 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 a superstition and a, and a very silly one at that but gotcha. um when we lost that national championship game to Amherst I left all those clothes in the hotel <laughs> <laughs> and uh 
and never saw them again. So. <laughs> if you could change one rule about uh, college basketball, what would you change? I miss the um, the free throw, uh, the one on one for women's basketball. I think that, that was a huge part of the game and strategy, mm-hmm. and um, and and I really miss that. What was your favorite drill as a player, and what's your favorite drill now as a coach? Um, uh, we start every practice with transition drills, okay. and um, and I'd say our two-on-two transition drill. Uh, I, I mean, I could really – there's a many I could say, but I'm just going to choose that one. Um. As a player, I was very defensive-minded, so we did certain shell drill, like competitive shell drill um, things in practice at Bates, um, and I really loved defense, and so I know it's crazy, but I would, I would probably pick that. <laughs> so, so lastly, we have seen the, the women's game grow each and every year. I'm just curious that, in your opinion, what is needed for the women's game to truly take that next step and become mainstream? Um, you don't think it is? I think it's getting there, but I I don't think it's truly mainstream yet. Yeah. Um, yeah, I actually talked with a, a group that's working on marketing the game more. Um, mm-hmm. The other day they were asking me questions. And I think the women's game is, is different than the, the men's game in, in a lot of ways. But I think it also... I think the it, it appeals to a, a a different a different market entirely, and, I, and so I think I think focusing on that maybe it's going about it the wrong way. But in my mind, when I look at our crowd, and I mean we turned away fifty people, we, yeah. we sold out one of our in our game against Tufts at home, um, and had to turn at least fifty people away. So. I mean, we have a population that we have a lot of young families, a lot of older people, and then a lot of people from the college community, of course, that come to our games. But I think it's it's marketing to the, that, our game to that group of people. Um, I think that that's important. But you could also look at it the other way of how are you going to get um, the rest of the human beings in the world like to get on board with this, right. how great the women's game is. Um, so that's a really good question that I guess I need to think more about. Well, Coach, I really appreciate all the time. Uh, as we do always on the Double Double, we give the last word to to the guest. Do you have anything you want to say to the great people of Brunswick, Maine? Um, yeah, I would just love to say thank you to the people of Brunswick, Maine for all of their incredible support this season. It was it was super, and every season, it was a magical ride. And, uh, winning the conference on the road and rising with a really young team, five freshmen. So, um, but, but having their support along the way and knowing that you're going to walk into Moral Gym and, and every seat, someone's going to be in every seat, that's pretty special. I don't think yeah. that happens in a lot of places. So I'd really love to thank everyone uh, in Brunswick and the surrounding towns for all, all of their support and to my team for just, um, you know, bringing, all, bringing everyone in the community so much joy. So, um yeah, and I'd like to thank you for having me. Thanks, Coach. It was, it was, it was a pleasure. Yeah, me too. Thanks. That'll do it for this episode of The Double Double. If you like this podcast, you can subscribe to us on iTunes or Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. And you can leave us a rating or a review. Five stars would be much, much appreciated. Uh, we'll be back on Friday. So until then, take care. 
and make it a great day.